I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me on today's program in the second and third segments is Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, Dr. Schilling is a returning guest here on the program. Uh, He publishes a terrific newsletter titled Insight. Uh, You may recognize his name as well as a long time, as in about four decades or better, Forbes columnist. So uh, he'll be joining me uh, again in the second and third segments of today's program. It will get his take on what's going on in the economy, his forecast for stocks. And let me remind you, uh, before I give you uh, my forecast for stocks moving ahead, that we do have a website that is loaded with free resources. Uh, You can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can sign up for our free newsletter there. Uh, You can also listen to the podcast version of this uh, radio program there as well. And again, that website is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Next week on the program, I should have an announcement about uh, my new book. It's titled Revenue Sourcing, and it's a planning strategy for the post-pandemic economy. So uh, we're going to make that available to listeners. Um, Make sure that you tune in next week. I'll have an announcement on that book's release. So let's talk a bit about stocks. You know, there's no shortage of opinions as to where stocks go from here. There are those analysts that are anticipating a V-shaped recovery. Other less optimistic analysts are looking for a U-shaped recovery. And then there are the pessimists that are looking at an L-shaped recovery. Well, it seems like when you look at what's been happening in stocks over the last six weeks or so, that stocks and markets are maybe getting a little bit more normal, to use that term, although I think we would all agree that nothing really seems normal today. I believe that what we're seeing in stocks at this point is simply the calm before the storm. In other words, I view the current rally as a counter-trend bear market rally that will die out at some point before the next wave down begins. Now, Market Watch published an article uh, just this past week, and I'm going to give you just a bit from this article. It says, U.S. stocks are trading at pricier valuations relative to corporate profits than at any point since the dot-com bubble in 2000. The large cap index, again referring to the S&P 500, is trading at more than 22 times expected 12-month earnings, a level not seen in roughly 20 years, according to FactSet. Now, Jeff Buchbinder, who is quoted in the article, he's an equity strategist at LPL Financial, said, We are encouraged by the stabilization of new COVID-19 cases and the massive stimulus put in place. However, stock market valuations are no longer as attractive. He added that a correction of 10 to 15% would not surprise them. Now, if you take a look at earnings, and earnings are really the driving force behind stock prices, uh, earnings are expected to fall for S&P 500 companies in 2021 
Um, was expected back the first part of March that earnings would be $194 per share. However, now the consensus is that they'll fall to about 150 So if you have a decline in earnings, what that means is the price-to-earnings ratio is going to go up and stocks are going to be valued at even higher multiples. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with a price-earnings ratio, it is simply the price of a stock divided by the earnings per share of a stock. So in simple terms, the question you ask yourself is, how many dollars do I need to part with to get back a dollar in earnings? And right now that answer is 22. Now, that number is likely going to go up because earnings are going to go down. That will be a driving force downward for stocks. I have long advocated that we would see a Dow to gold ratio of two. Now, I realize that sounds extreme, and for those of you who are not familiar with the Dow to gold ratio, it is simply the price of the Dow Jones Industrial Average in U.S. dollars divided by the price of gold per ounce in U.S. dollars. So a ratio of two would mean that the Dow has to be at 5,000 and gold would have to be at 2,500, or the Dow would have to be at 10,000 and gold would have to be at 5,000. I know that sounds extreme. However, when one looks at history and tracks the Dow to gold ratio going all the way back to 1913 when the Federal Reserve was founded, at every major market bottom, we have seen a ratio of at least two and a couple times one. So this is not without historical precedent. And that's what we do here on this program is take a look at different times in history when economic conditions look like they look today, and then we apply what happened then to what might happen now. Now, the only way that I think stocks do not decline from here is if the Fed policy becomes even more extreme. Now, I have been discussing here on the program that the Fed really has begun to manufacture money to buy junk bonds directly and buy via a special purpose vehicle used by the U.S. Treasury corporate bonds. So in essence, what this is doing is nationalizing corporate bonds to at least some extent. Now, if the Fed were to expand that to buying stocks, then all bets are off. We could see the stock market go much higher, but then we have a currency issue. At a certain point, faith in a currency, history teaches us, is lost when enough new currency is created. And it appears that there will be more new currency created because there are a lot of new stimulus proposals, again, being floated in Washington. I call them a money-for-the-masses program. Senators Camilla Harris, Bernie Sanders, and Ed Markey have proposed a bill that would pay each American $2,000 monthly. The $2,000 monthly payments would be made to each adult family member, as well as each child in the family, up to a maximum of three children. That means a family of five would get $10,000 monthly. The bill would also block 
debt collectors from seizing payments to pay back bills. You can't make this stuff up. And of course, there is an elephant in the room. The question is, from where will the money come to pay for such a utopian fantasy? Well, the answer is the same place that it's been coming from. The money creation machine that we've come to know as the Federal Reserve. Now, here's the harsh reality. This is just math. I would ask that you don't shoot the messenger. When you double the money in circulation, you have its purchasing power. When you double the money in circulation, you cut the purchasing power of that money in half. It's that simple. When you continue to print money with a blatant disregard for economic reality, you eventually destroy a currency and the savings and investments of those that put their faith in the currency. History teaches us this over and over again, and in the last segment of today's program, I'm going to give you a couple historical examples, so certainly stay tuned for that segment. Now, evidently that history has not been taught to those eagerly awaiting the next round of free money from the government. But if you have some saved money, perhaps in a 401k or IRA, or maybe you've inherited some money from a hardworking parent who's passed on, you need to know this history and you need to plan accordingly. That's why for the past decade, I've advocated a two-bucket approach to managing assets. One bucket to hedge against a deflationary collapse, which is, as I just discussed, what I expect to see happen to stocks. And another bucket to hedge against future and ever-increasing money creation. You need to have both outcomes covered or you risk damage to your portfolio. There are more resources available at our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. I would encourage you to check it out. And I'd also encourage you to stay tuned because I'll be back after these words with my special guest today, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is returning guest, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, Dr. Schilling publishes a newsletter uh, that is must-read, in my opinion. The newsletter title is Insight. It's a comprehensive 30- to 40-page report. Uh, He publishes this every month, and uh, it's uh, one of the best economic overviews uh, available, in my opinion. So I'd encourage you to check it out. You can go to the website, uh, agaryshilling.com. That's www.agaryshilling.com. Shilling is spelled S-H-I-L-L-I-N-G. Or you can call his office, 888-346-7444. And Gary, welcome back to the program. Oh, I'm glad to be back with you, Dennis. Always a pleasure. Well, it's always a pleasure to chat with you and get your insight as well. Uh, No pun intended, but that is the name of the newsletter. Let's start with uh, your headline for the May newsletter. Uh, Rather scary. Is this 1929 all over again? And boy, it sure looks like it. What's, What's your take? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of similarities. In 1929, you know, there'd been a huge rally in stocks in the uh, in, in the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties. The essence, the uh, Dow Jones, which was the standard of the time, was up 600 uh, percent. But then, in in September 29, for two months, 
it had a sharp decline, 48%. Well, after that, everybody thought everything is fine. It knocked some of the fluff of the 20s off. Uh, we're ready for uh, bigger and better things. And stocks actually rallied back 52% of their decline, retracement. But then, as, as people began to realize that the depression was starting and was going to be very deep, stocks uh, resumed their decline. They really a pretty much a straight down decline until uh, July of 1932, total decline 89%. Now the parallel today is that we had we had we had a, a 500% increase in the S&P uh, in the in the uh, after the Great Recession uh, uh, starting in in 2009 up until February 19th was a was a peak this year, and then with the virus uh, the Great fear was there, and and stocks declined. The S and P declined 34 percent. Well, everybody at that point thought that everything would be under control. That that we were going to see we were going to see some vaccine rapidly. That uh, things were going to reopen, and stocks retraced 55 uh, percent of that decline. And, and that's where we are now. But in my view, we're we're really going to see the second leg down, very much like in the depression. Not not that severe necessarily, but but what we're what we have this time is discounting the very uh, very severe recession. I think it's going to last into next year, and uh, and as a result, I think stocks could fall from here 30 to 40 percent. Uh, you have the supply side disruptions, trying to get people back to work, uh, uh, businesses open, uh, worldwide economic activity refigured. Uh, it's it's going to be a long haul. This is the greatest shock to the world economy, in my view, since World War II. Gary, you know, you you look at some of the indicators, um, and you talk about in your Inside Newsletter uh, unemployment. Um, you talk a little bit about uh, what the current unemployment rate is, uh, and talk about you know where are we going from here? Have we seen the worst of it? Does it get worse from here? What's your take? I don't think we've seen the worst. Now, the, the recorded number, uh, the headline number for uh, for April, which was just reported last Friday, was 14.7% unemployment. But that underestimated it because people dropping out of the labor force, they just said, I give up, I can't find any work. They're not counted. And if you put all those in and include people who didn't ch- check the forms correctly on the questionnaires, the, the, the rate was actually 19%. Now, in the depths of the Great Depression, it got to 25%. We're not there yet, but I don't think we're we're through with this because you're seeing continual layoffs. And, of course, one of the interesting things now is it is advantageous for a lot of people to be laid off because they're collecting not only state unemployment insurance, but an extra 600 bucks. And for a lot of people in this country, people who are flipping hamburgers or cleaning houses or so on, they're making more on unemployment than they were when they were working. So, Gary, what do you see happening? I mean, we, we are the United States economy is very dependent on consumer spending, you and I going out and consuming. Um, you know, it, what's happening as far as consumption? Well, consumption it took a, a huge uh, decline in recent months, and the saving rate jumped up. And I think that's where we're, where we're going, is that people are going to be saving a lot more of whatever income they have. This was a huge shock. You know, the uh, Federal Reserve statistics show that uh, the majority of people in this country don't have 400 bucks in, in cash reserves to cover contingencies. 400 bucks, that doesn't take you very far in today's economy. 
So I think that this shock is going to cause people uh, not only to be very slow to come out of their houses and go to restaurants and and uh, and travel and bars and so on and so forth, but also to save a lot more money because they realize that they were very, very undersaved. So you have a number of detrimental effects on consumer, the, the fear, the, the, the lack of zeal to go out, uh, the slow opening of the economy, people getting used to being at home. You know, a lot of people, I think, found that that wasn't such a bad idea. They got to know their kids better and maybe their spouses as well. Uh, but also uh, the idea that they'll want to save a lot more money than they did earlier and build up some assets that they sorely need. So, Gary, in your Insight newsletter, and if you're just joining us, we're chatting today with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, Dr. Schilling publishes the monthly Insight newsletter. You can learn more at www.agaryshilling.com. I would encourage you to check it out. Um, so this kind of dovetails into the last uh, item we just talked about, Gary, but in your newsletter you talked about consumer confidence and uh you, you had an indicator in there that consumer confidence, I think the term you use is that it's nosediving. Talk about that, and uh, won't that be a big hindrance to the V-shaped recovery so many pundits are forecasting and so many people are hoping for? Yeah, well, well, consumer sentiment has, has definitely been hit hard, and the whole shock of people being locked up, not being able to go out, fear of the virus, uh, the knowledge that more people are dying every day, and of course, uh, the politicians want to reopen the economy, and that's true of, of uh, Washington, and it's also true of the state level. But uh, but but people are really fearful. They don't they don't really want to uh, comply with that. So I think we're I think we do have a, a distinct uh, decline in confidence, which is probably going to be with us for for some time. So Gary, when you take a look at the response. Um, Stimulus packages, uh, I think the Fed expanded their balance sheet by over 40% in one month. Um, that's uh, just remarkable when you stop and think about it. Uh, you wrote a book uh, called The Age of uh, Deleverage, Deleveraging, which basically talks about uh, you know, the deflationary effects of uh, a lot of debt. Now with this response by the Fed, have you changed your position on that? Well, not really, because the debt is, is at the federal level. And, of course, a lot of people figure that with the uh, huge increase in the in the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, knocking interest rates down to zero, and then this massive fiscal stimulus, the aid to small businesses, to individuals, everybody in sight, that we're going to have this V-shaped recovery, that we're going to have uh, the economy coming back in the second half. And that's very much that's very much in parallel to what happened in in 1929, September to, to November was a decline, and then into July of 1930, everybody thought the thing was well. And I think we're in that similar period. But the point is that all this monetary and fiscal stimuli, I don't think is over, going to overcome the effects of the closing up the economy and the fear factor. Bear in mind that we had massive monetary and fiscal stimuli after the Great Recession. Uh, that's when the Fed, again, knocked interest rates down to zero embarked on quantitative easing, and we saw a huge uh, fiscal stimulus package, tax cuts, tax rebates, uh, money to keep teachers hired, uh, money for new new uh, uh, highway construction and so on, the so-called shovel-ready projects. Uh, and that amounted to 6% of GDP. Now, we're over that now, but bear in mind that back then, the housing collapse that really was the guts of the Great Recession 
affected relatively few people. People who had speculated in housing thought they were going to make a killing. Uh, they got they got absolutely hammered, and it did spread to everybody else. But this time, the whole thing affects everybody. It just isn't it just isn't focused on a relatively small group. So I think with all this monetary and fiscal stimuli, it still is not going to it's not going to give us that V-shaped recovery. But that's what the that's what the consensus believes, and I think that's what's been reflected lately uh, in the in the stock market rebound. Yeah, and 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 Gary, there there's certainly uh, this this whole situation is bringing to light the fact that there's a lot of states out there that are just flat broke. They've got underfunded pensions. I'm thinking about the state of Illinois, but there are others. Um, in fact, I think you mentioned in your newsletter that uh, Majority Leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, uh, made a comment that states should be allowed to go bankrupt uh, to to deal with their debts. Um, do you think that's going to happen? And, and how do you see this 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 impacting uh, pensions and and state liabilities? Well, uh, states going bankrupt. I think there's some legal restraints. Uh, uh, to that, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I think there are. Now, Puerto Rico went bankrupt, but that's a territory. That's not a that's not a state. Uh, but what McConnell is getting at is a lot of states have really uh, had no fiscal discipline. Illinois, uh, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, California, they build up huge pension fund liabilities, uh, and and now the question is how are they going to fund them? Because they were figuring on their stock portfolios or whole portfolios rising about 7 or 8% a year. Well, I don't think that's in the cars in the foreseeable future, quite the opposite. And so they don't have the gain in their portfolios. Uh, so they have three They have three choices, none of them very attractive. One is to go to the states for more money. Well, the states are really pressed now. Uh, tax collections are down. Uh, uh, expenses for for uh, a wealth for welfare, uh, Medicare, Medicaid are up. They're not going to come through. The, uh, the second one is, is to uh, restrain benefits. Uh, that's very hard to do, uh, but there's probably going to be some there. And the third one is to ask current employees to contribute more. The, the latter two, there's probably going to be some of that and maybe a gradual working out of this. But what some states have been doing in, 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 uh, in cities in recent years is to move away from what are called defined, de- defined benefit plans. That's where the, the company, the state, whatever, provides a pension upon retirement so much a month for life, the employer doesn't have to do anything. They're moving to defined contribution, which are like uh, 401k plans for, for, for in the private sector. And that's where there's a, a, a set contribution and the employee can decide how it's going to be invested. And at the end of the day, what they have is theirs and there's no additional funding from the, uh, from the governmental body. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to move in that direction. I don't think we're going to see bankruptcies well, we're going to see a lot of, of strange states and local governments. Well, our guest today is Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Dr. Schilling publishes the newsletter Insight. You can learn more at agaryshilling.com or call his office at 888-346-7444. The number again is 888-346-7444. I will give that again in the next segment when I continue my conversation with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. I am chatting today with returning guest, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Always a pleasure to have Gary on the program. 
Uh, Gary publishes a newsletter that in the current economic and financial environment, I would consider to be must reading. The newsletter is Insight. Uh, we are chatting today with uh, some topics from his May newsletter. If you'd like to learn more, you can call his office at 888-346-7444 or visit the website agaryshilling.com. So Gary, in the last segment, um, you uh, provided uh, your view, uh, I think I could even say forecast, that there is going to be a lot more downside uh, for stocks here. So. Let me ask a question. If someone today has a nest egg that they're trying to manage, what kind of advice are you giving your clients? Well, we are registered investment advisors, as you know, Dennis, and we, we do manage other people's money. And I can tell you what we've been doing with it. And, and, and by the way, so far this year, we've had very good results because we were really prepared for this. The economy was, was really slowing uh, starting late last year. Many people didn't want to admit it, but it was. And we figured it wouldn't take much to tip it into a recession. And, of course, then the virus came along and did precisely that. So we were really prepared for it. And we had a fabulous, I mean, we had a, we had a great decade in the first quarter in our investments. Uh, but what we did and where we are now is we are, we are long treasury bonds. They're the safe haven. Uh, we're in an environment that is probably more deflationary than inflationary. And there's a very high correlation between inflation and treasury bond yields. And of course, if uh, yields go down, prices go up. As you know, I've been a fan on long treasury bonds since uh, 1981 when I said in print, we're entering the bond rally of a lifetime. And since then, uh, long-term treasury bonds have outperformed, outperformed the S&P 500 by six times, six times. Well, we're sticking to that because I think we still have further, further lower rates. Whether they're going to go negative or not is a question, but I think still lower and lower rates mean uh, more appreciation. Uh, the second thing is that we're along the dollar. I think the dollar is a safe haven. Uh, again, it's where people go in times of trouble, and I rather suspect that we're going to see further uh, strength in the dollar. Uh, the third thing is that we're short stocks. Uh, we're, we're, now, we're top down. We, we are, our investment strategy starts with the economic, political, financial spheres, develops a forecast, and then sees what investment themes drop out. And whether it's Commodities, stocks, bonds, currencies, long, short, uh, we, we, don't, we don't really uh, have any restrictions. We don't think being short is unpatriotic. And so we've been short the S&P. Uh, we're, we're only lightly that way recently since we've had this rally, but we still have a toehold negative S&P, and that worked very well for us in the first quarter, and I think it will in the future. And then short commodities, uh, copper is our favorite. Copper goes into almost any manufactured goods, whether it's cars, appliances, plumbing fixtures, machinery. And so copper is a very good indicator of global uh, economic activity. And and there's no cartel in the supply or demand side of copper. It's not like OPEC, where you can have a great forecast on the fundamentals, and then the Russians and OPEC come out with some announcement, and you're really in trouble. But, but copper, I think, is going to continue to decline, uh, reflecting the excess supply. And that's what we're in. We're in an excess supply world, and that, and that means probably more inflation deflation rather than inflation so that's basically the guts of our portfolio so gary let me if i could just play devil's advocate for a minute because i think we've got the uh the 30-year u.s treasury bond yielding presently around 1.2 1.3 percent last i looked and you can correct me if, if that's not accurate yeah, so how can we see yields go lower when you think about a 30-year bond yielding 
you know, 1.2, 1 1.3% has been below 1% at some point. Um, it just seems like that's hard to justify. And I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking that. Uh, what's your rationale for that position? Well, if we have deflation, and I think there is a good chance we'll move into chronic deflation, let's say we have ab uh, prices overall declining 2% a year. Uh, now, if we had that and you had a you had a 1% yield on the Treasury, that would be a 3% in real terms. If it were zero, it would be 2% in real terms. And and that 2 to 3% is the long-term average for real inflation-adjusted uh, long-term Treasury yields. So it really, it really depends where you go from here, depends very much on inflation deflation. There's a 60% correlation between inflation over the entire post-war period and long-term treasury bond yields. So my, my, my justification for maintaining the long on treasuries is the, uh, is the uh, prospects of deflation. Also, in the, in the intermediate term, uh, for the balance of the year and into next year, with, I think, a serious recession, it's a safe haven effect as well. I mean, people go for for safe havens. I mean, you have people, you know, you have you have people abroad who are going for the dollar, uh, even though they're getting no no return on it. So uh, it's it's the same kind of thing. A safe haven is very important for a characteristic in investors. So, Gary, let's tell us, let's talk a little bit about uh, more government assistance. Whether that goes that uh, there's a bill. Now, I think pending on the floor of the Senate that would uh, pay each American $2,000 a month. Can you envision uh, some uh, some response by the government, the Fed, or some combination thereof that would make you become more uh, concerned about inflation and, and think that that's going to be the outcome versus deflation? Or, or do you think that's just not a possibility? Well, it is a possibility if we were to seal off the borders. We're in an excess supply world. You look at Asia. They are big producers. They produce a lot more than they consume. Uh, there's a savings glut, and that means with more production than there is consumption globally, that prices are declining. Now, in that environment, if we were to seal off the borders to imports, and we are getting more and more protectionists, there's no question of that, but if we were to go so far as to seal off the borders to imports, and then you have this massive monetary and fiscal stimuli, hey, you can overheat the They could overheat the economy, and they could they could create inflation, no question about it. But I think you would have to look at it as a as a as a isolated U.S. economy. All right, I appreciate your perspective. So, what's your take on GDP? I, I'm seeing. Uh, I think Goldman and Morgan Stanley say we're going to see. I think they revised their forecast to a 38 percent decline quarter over quarter, second quarter of this year. How do you see it? I, you know, I'm. I don't spend a lot of time. Uh, trying to define those short-term numbers, uh, I don't think it's a very very fruitful exercise. You know, say that 20, 30 percent annual rate decline uh, for the second quarter. Uh, I wouldn't argue with that. It's the third and fourth quarter where I think we're going to see further declines and not this V-shaped recovery, uh, which a lot of people and I think many stockholders believe in, which would bring the economy well into recovery by the end of the year. I think well, I think it's not a V. I think it's an L. And I think we'll see we'll see the big decline now, but then further declines in the third and fourth quarter and into uh, 2010. And, you know, if, if the economy uh, for the year is down 8, 10 percent and that continues into next year, that wouldn't surprise me. So where do stocks have to go for you to turn into a bull? Is that a fair question? <laughs> well, 
if you look at the um, cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio put together by my good friend Bob Schiller of Yale, he got a PhD. Uh, I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, he got a Nobel Prize for this and other work. If you look at that, where you are now, uh, that that uh, that uh, price earnings ratio, and it's on the last 10 years of inflation adjusted earnings, it's now 24. Long term, it was 17. Uh, now, to get get back to that long term average, you'd have to have stocks decline 22 percent. Well, they won't stop there. If you get back to where you did at the at the low in 19 uh, in, in in 2008, uh, you'd have a 40 percent decline in stocks from here. And and if you want to get back to where you got previously at at low PEs, which are more like eight. Uh, you'd have a 75% decline. In other words, you can see some pretty big declines. Now, those are PEs. And bear in mind that the earnings to which you apply those PEs that are also important. And earnings are obviously collapsing. And and another thing is you don't have stock buybacks, which were a strong supporter of stocks in the last five years. So I think when you put this together, it's not it's 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 pretty easy, almost optimistic, to see that the stocks further decline will only be 30 or 40% from here. So, Gary, in the time we have left, uh, what's your take on real estate? And if you could maybe break that down, uh, seems like with all this work at home stuff that, that, that that's got to negatively affect commercial real estate along with all the other factors we talked about. Uh, so what's your take on commercial and then residential real estate moving ahead? Well, real estate is, is you know, what they say, <laughs> secret to real estate, location, location, location. <laughs> uh, it. it yeah, it, it obviously differs. Uh, I think commercial real estate office buildings are going to be weak. You're going to have a lot more people working from home. Uh, yeah, if they're in the office, they're going to be more spread out, but probably on balance, more people from working at home is going to overcome that. The weakest sector, I think, are probably malls uh, because you've had the shift to online retailing for years, and that's really speeded up now. And a lot of people, I'm one of them, I found how many things I can order and they arrive on the doorstep next day and even if I could go to the store, uh, it's a lot more convenient not to. So I think malls are very, very weak. Uh, medical office buildings, uh, that's probably going to be attractive with, with, with aging, retiring post-war babies and their medical needs and reconfiguration after, after the virus. Uh, so those are areas I, I, I think of, of strength. Uh, apartments are, are very interesting. Um, I, I think there are a lot of people that are going to, uh, are going to be uh, in apartments in the foreseeable future, and that's what happened after the that's what happened after the uh, Great Recession. They couldn't afford single-family houses. The credit uh, credit standards tightened up. They realized that house prices, for the first time since the 30s nationwide, had had declined, and so you had a rush for apartments. And another interesting area: a couple of uh, uh, companies are involved in our ownership of single-family homes for rental. I think there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be moving out of cities to suburbs. And whether it's apartments or whether it's single-family rentals or even buying single-family houses, I think they're going to say, hey, I want to get out of the city. I don't want to be that close to other people. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, if you're just joining us, uh, Dr. Schilling publishes uh, the excellent newsletter, Insight, every month. We've been chatting with him uh, about some of the topics in his May issue. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to agaryshilling.com or call 888-346-7444. Gary, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Always very much appreciate your uh, insights and perspective, and I uh, would love to have you back down the road. Well, I hope we can do it again, Dennis. I'll look forward to it. <laughs> 
as will I. We will return after these words. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. Glad you're tuned in today. You know, in the first segment of today's program, I talked about the fact that we're going to have to see one of two outcomes, economically speaking, in my view. Because we have massive levels of debt in the private sector and also in the public sector, we will have to see a deflationary period of time not unlike the 1930s, in my view. The alternative to that economic outcome would be that we have money creation continue in such massive amounts and in such massive quantities that eventually we see inflation or hyperinflation. And I've had very bright guests here on the program, uh, many of which think we will see one outcome, many of which think we will see another outcome. Now, there are a lot of examples historically of money printing destroying a currency, so it's not as unusual as you might think. If you look at the recent examples of Zimbabwe and Venezuela, it's easy to see the results of socialistic free money for all. Currencies are destroyed, along with the hopes and dreams of savers who aspire to a comfortable retirement or maybe just a more comfortable life someday. Now, this is not economic theory. It's a statement of economic fact. You cannot study history and find one instance of any society or government printing their way to prosperity whether the, whether the printing occurred via a devaluation of precious metal coins or through the use of a digital printing press, which is today's preferred method. Now, no matter your political leanings, if you have assets, this is a lesson that you definitely do not want to learn the hard way. Now, in the interest of brevity, I'll give you just a couple examples. In the early 1700s, John Law was the central banker of France. Mr. Law's legacy is that he destroyed the financial system through excessive money creation. Mr. Law was appointed central banker by the regent who was ruling France for Louis XV, who happened to be just seven years old at the time. The first step that Mr. Law took when he became the central banker was to issue paper money that could be exchanged for precious metal coins that were used as currency at the time. Well, it didn't take too long, and all the coins were completely removed from circulation since paper money is a lot easier to use than our coins. Now, due to the massive amount of debt that France had after the death of Louis XIV, who incidentally was a very popular king because he provided a lot of free government benefits to his subjects, Law began to print more paper money than he had precious metals to back, a theme we often see. Eventually, once Mr. Law had created enough paper currency, France made holding the coins made from precious metals illegal. Franklin Roosevelt pulled a page out of John Law's book in 1933 when he made owning gold illegal for American citizens. Well, as the printing of paper money continued, it seemed for a time in France that prosperity was everywhere. Stocks soared. Shares in the now infamous Mississippi company rose more than 1,000% in one year. Real estate prices soared. Luxury items were flying off the shelves in Paris. Eventually, 
as always happens with unbridled money printing, the currency failed and the French financial system failed. Now, undoubtedly, you've all heard and read and learned in history class of the failure of the German mark after World War I. Germany assumed that it would quickly win the war, which justified the temporary use of the printing press. See, almost always, when money printing starts, it's temporary. At least that's what we're told, but that never ends up being the case. Remember back after the financial crisis when the Fed started printing $85 billion a month on a temporary basis? That conversation we used to have in billions is now taking place in trillions of dollars created literally out of thin air. Now, Germany was overly optimistic regarding the war's outcome. They thought they would temporarily use the printing press to win the war, and then they would stop. Well, they printed money a little bit too quickly, and inflation took hold. In fact, historians, many historians believe, that one of the major contributing factors to Germany's loss of the war was that a lot of the country's troops abandoned the military due to soldiers' wages not keeping pace with rapidly escalating consumer prices. Now, after the war, the size of the payments being required of Germany made them continue to print money, and the inflation problem just worsened and intensified. When World War I began, the German mark could be exchanged for a U.S. dollar at a rate of 4.2 marks per dollar. By the time 1923 rolled around, the exchange rate was 4.2 trillion marks per U.S. dollar. That's a devaluation factor of 1 trillion. Now, our current currency devaluation, because yes, we are on that slippery slope, began with the adoption of Keynesian economic policies. In his book, published in 1936, John Maynard Keynes said that or theorized that central banks and governments could play an active role in stabilizing economies by creating demand. That demand is now being created by printing money. Now, as we talked about briefly on last week's program, after World War II, the U.S. dollar became the world reserve currency because it could be exchanged for gold at a rate of $35 an ounce, very similar to John Law's arrangement where paper money could be exchanged for the coins containing precious metals. Eventually, Law did away with that convertibility, and the United States did the same thing in 1971 when the redemptions of U.S. dollars for gold were once again temporarily suspended. Since that time, the U.S. dollar has been a fiat currency, and history teaches us one other thing. Fiat currencies always fail, so we're not debating the what, we're only debating the when. Now, on my blog this week, which you can visit at DennisTubergenBlog.com, I have a chart of the German mark priced in gold, and beside that chart, I have put a chart of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, which really measures how much money has been created. I would encourage you to go to DennisTubergenBlog.com and look at those two charts because they look eerily similar. Now, my point is this. As great as $10,000 a month sounds for a family of five or $4,000 a month for a couple, as is being proposed now in Washington, it will only accelerate currency devaluation.
I'd encourage you to educate yourself. Go to our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Sign up for our newsletter and uh, certainly tune in next week. I'll have uh, news about the release of my new book, Revenue Sourcing, which will share with you a strategy to use to plan your finances in the post-pandemic economy. That's all the time I have for this week. Thanks for listening. I'll be back again next week.